Good morning. It is great for Mary and I to uh, be back here with you. Uh, a few folks we recognize. We actually met a couple after first service who was in a church that we, our missionaries, one of their supported missionaries back in Colorado Springs, and now they're here at Grace Bible. <laughs> so you never know. Um, we have to be on our, our toes, don't we? But we are really happy to be here. This is kind of uh, the coming out tour for Mary. She's been a teacher for 30 years and finally retired, and so now we're bringing her around to all those places where they kept saying, is she still on the planet? Um, so yes, she's here, and I know we both love to greet you after the service today. Um, let's get into the word. What happens when you suddenly realize that something valuable is lost. On one of our trips back to the Middle East for another year of ministry, I discovered in Frankfurt, Germany, that my brand new laptop was missing. You can bet that as soon as we got to our apartment the next morning at 3 a.m., I was on a Skype call back to Den Denver International Airport, lost and found. And when the item is located and turned in by a TSA agent, there is great rejoicing. And there's a whole other story about how we got that computer back to Jordan. What happens when you suddenly realize that something of value is lost? You look for it. This morning, I want to help us to see all the evidence there is in Scripture for the fact that our great God is always seeking his highly valued but helplessly lost creatures. And if that is true, we must ask ourselves, how should that change us this morning? Our search this morning will take us from the Old Testament to the New to today, and so we can't spend long at any one place, though I certainly wish we could. This is sort of like investigating white on rice. It's everywhere. But we start at the beginning of the Bible, and if you want to turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 2, that's where we'll begin. We're going to touch on a lot of different scripture from the Old Testament to the New. I'll try to mention it. Hopefully you can find it quickly, and uh, we'll go on from there. Genesis 2.25 sums up all the goodness that God had done in the creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And here's what that verse says. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Openness, no fear, no shame, no guilt, all Good. In fact, God pronounced his creation very good. Then we turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, and the story is downhill from there till the cross. For you see, uh, God had said to the man, eat freely from any tree in the garden but one. Because if you eat from that one, 
you shall surely die. And implied there is, I'm saying this for your good. Well, the serpent, excuse me, Satan using the serpent beguiled Eve by saying, you shall not surely die. He parroted God's words, but put a negative in there. You shall not surely die. Instead, you will become like God. Well, Eve believed the lie, the pair ate, and the rest is history. And we come to this then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. The eyes of Adam and Eve were opened. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. Here's God, the Creator, coming to have relationship with His creatures in the very most wonderful part of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. The comparison to the last verse in uh, chapter 2 is stark. Now there was covering, hiding, shame, fear, guilt. Definitely not good. We need to carefully consider that at this very point, God had every right in his holy wrath against sin to judge the first sinners. But he did not. Why? Because he's always seeking those he set his eternal love upon. Because he wants relationship with them. Well, we see God's gracious and undeserved seeking of the first sinners as Genesis 3 continues. I'm now in Genesis 3, 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now, God never asks a question because he doesn't know. He asks a question to elicit a response. And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that word means hostile opposition, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed or offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3.15. Not only did God seek out the first sinners in their sin, he promised a seed or offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and provide salvation through the bruising of his own heel, all on the cross of Calvary. In Galatians 3.16, we are told that this special seed is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. But what would God do to bring about the birth 
of such a special person? Well, there are a lot of details involved in that, but we're going to survey a couple of them here. In Genesis chapter 12, there's the next place you can turn, always the seeker, God's answer to how to bring about the birth of that seed of the woman was a pagan man living in Ur of the Chaldeans whom God graciously called to himself and made great promises recorded in Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. We read, Now the Lord said to Abram, that was Abraham's name before God changed it, He said, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's a sense in which all the rest of the scriptures is an elucidation of this man's family. We note once again, the initiative was from God, who is always seeking, changing the heart of a pagan man so that God's plan to bring blessing to all the families of the earth could go forward. As the rest of Genesis unfolds, we see that the seed will come through the line of Isaac, not Ishmael, and Jacob, not Esau. So the call and promises given to Abram add to our understanding of our always-seeking God. His desire is not just to bless Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people, but through them to bless all the families of the earth. Next, we're going to move ahead to the hymn book that God inspired among the Jewish people. You know it as the book of Psalms. These are the songs that Moses and David and Solomon and those following them sang in worship. We might assume that those songs spoke only of God's interest in the Jewish people, but our assumption would be wrong. We've already seen that God sought out Abraham and chose him so that blessing might come to all the families of the earth. This is also a major theme in the book of Psalms that we might have overlooked. For example, Psalm 67 and this is just one example of many, the psalmist has carried forward the theme of Genesis 12, verse 3, that God has blessed his ancient people that all the ends of the earth might fear him. Ancient Israel's privilege was to be a shining witness to the nations of God's gracious seeking and desire that none should perish, but all should come to him, that their relationship might be restored. And by the way, this is not an isolated psalm. Virtually the entirety of Psalm 67 is about this, but other psalms also mention it. Psalm 47, 83, 86, 87, 96, 117. If you want that list, let me know. To summarize, the hymn book of Israel, the songs that God's people sang in worship, those songs are full of references to God seeking all the nations through the witness of his nation. Well, not surprisingly then, we find the same theme echoed in the prophets of the Old Testament. God is interested in seeking the lost among all the nations, even 
the nations who were Israel's enemy. The classic example, of course, is Jonah. You're familiar with that book of the Bible. If you need to find it, there's a children's song. Hosea, Jonas, Obadiah. Okay, Jonah's after Obadiah. Find Obadiah, and then you'll find Jonah. Okay, um, this is the story of God's reluctant prophet. He was not interested in God finding any Ninevites. They were Israel's enemies. But you see, God demonstrates all through his word that he's seeking all kinds of lost people. Not just nice Joe next door, but maybe a Ninevite down the street that we don't have, want to have anything to do with. So God clearly shows his heart for the pagan peoples of Nineveh in this book. The surprise at the end is that when the Ninevites turn to God, Jonah was angry. In chapter 3, we read this, beginning at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this greatly displeased Jonah. And he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled across the Mediterranean Sea. Of course, God interrupted that with a great fish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant, loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. I knew that you were a God that was interested in these Ninevites, and I'm not. Is that you? Is that me? Throughout the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, we see God is always seeking the lost among all the peoples of the earth. Why? He values relationship with those he has set his eternal love upon. Israel's special place of blessing was to be a blessing in drawing the nations to the one and true God so that they could also be blessed by the seed of the woman. Now, that's a very short summary of what's in the Old Testament about our always seeking God. If we have any question as to whether this carries through the New Testament, all we have to do is look at the life of the seed, Jesus Christ. Here's just a few examples. In John chapter 4, there's a very, very interesting verse it says that Jesus was going to travel from Judea north to Galilee, and normally a godly Jew would go around Samaria because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They weren't following the true scriptures. They had scriptures of their own. They had a worship place of their own. So we would expect Jesus in traveling from Judea to Galilee to go around, but in John 6, it says, excuse me, John 4, verse 6, it says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because God is always seeking all kinds of lost people. And he knew that he had a divinely appointed meeting with a woman at a well. And through her witness, a witness to all of the Samaritans, who at the end of the encounter say, this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Another example. Tax gatherers. When I say that, what do you think about? The IRS. We just love the IRS, don't we? Tax gatherers were on the Jewish list of bad people in the first century because Jews who gathered taxes did it for the Roman government, the pagan Roman government. And they often did it in dishonest ways to make a little bit for themselves on the side. But our always seeking Lord told the complaining scribes and Pharisees who objected to Jesus spending time with tax gatherers, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One of those sinners was the tax gatherer named Levi. You know him as Matthew, the author of the first gospel. You can find that account in Luke chapter 5. Moving on ahead in Luke to Luke 15, we see a couple of verses that we just don't expect to find. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2 says this, All the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. What? And both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What? We would expect sinners to stay away from the Holy One of God and the religious leaders of Israel to flock to him. Such was not the case. So Jesus goes on in the rest of Luke 15 to tell three stories designed to show God's interest in all kinds of lost people, be they the sinners of verse 1 or the supposed saints of verse 2. The pattern in all three stories is the same. Something of value is lost, a search ensues, and when it is found, there's great rejoicing, surpassed only by the rejoicing in heaven when one sinner turns to the Lord. Jesus' point here was simply this. He welcomed all kinds of people, even sinful people, because like his father, he was always seeking. In the words of Luke 19.10, found at the end of Jesus calling another tax gatherer to himself named Zacchaeus, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now God's seeking is continuing through the church. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus gave the Great Commission, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. And then he returned to his Father and sent the Holy Spirit to indwell those believers because Jesus had promised them, you shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And the book of Acts shows very clearly the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, from Jews to Samaritans to Gentiles. A classic example of God seeking in the book of Acts, the early church, is found in Acts chapter 8. In that chapter, we see that one of God's men, Philip, was sent to a desert road, and there he encountered a court official of the queen of the Ethiopians. And he found this man sitting in his chariot reading the Old Testament. And of all things in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 
which talks about the seed of the woman who would bear the penalty for all the sheep that had gone astray. In Acts 8.35, it says, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. The text goes on to say that upon the man's request, Philip baptized him, and he returned home rejoicing. Now we might say, well, uh, that sounds like the progress of the gospel in the book of Acts was always easy going. It wasn't. Oftentimes, people resisted being found. In Acts 17, verse 6, we see this complaint by the Jews in Thessalonica reacting to Paul's ministry. They said, these men have upset the world, and they've come here now also. What a marvelous backhanded testimony to the fact that the early church was always seeking and now it's our turn. Our always seeking God is now seeking and saving lost people through our witness to the ends of the earth in ways that we often don't see. And I'd like to relate to you just one example of thousands that you, so that you will see what links God will go to to reach his valuable but helplessly lost people. Dr. Helen Rosevere was a medical missionary from the United Kingdom to Congo, the Belgian Congo, back in the turbulent 1960s. In her memoirs entitled Living Faith, which you can get on Amazon if you'd like to read it, she shares this amazing but true story. Helen had taken a missionary friend from Congo to Kampala, Uganda, to catch a plane to the UK. She took a quick sleep, and on the following morning, she set off at 4.30 a.m. She was driving through the countryside on a reasonable road. Not sure quite what she meant by that. But uh, nobody else was up yet. She watched the dawn break over the plains. She was enjoying the bird chorus when suddenly an unpleasant swerve alerted her to the fact that she was near to falling asleep. So she pulled her car up to a clump of bushes that was ahead and she got out of her car and was immediately confronted by an African man. Now I'm going to use Helen's words from this point on. Quite honestly, she says, I was taken aback, but one cannot be rude in Africa, so we went through the usual courtesies, he in West African Swahili and me in East, but we could make ourselves understood. After that, he should have gone away. They always do in their innate politeness, but he just stood there. So I asked him, what do you want? He said, are you a sent one? Well, said Helen, that doubtless is a very good definition of a missionary. So, well, yes, but it depends. Sent by whom for what? The man continued, are you a sent one by a great God to tell me about something called Jesus? Can you read, I asked him. 
No, he was an illiterate herdsman looking after the family cattle. But I had in my car a copy of the wordless book, colored pages that, that can be used to help youngsters or illiterate folks understand the way of salvation. Sitting together at the roadside in the early morning sunshine, slowly and carefully, I outlined the way to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his own Savior, the way to be found. Giving him a verse of scripture to memorize for each page, black, red, white, green, and gold. Within 20 to 25 minutes, I had watched the illiterate herdsman open up his heart to believe that Jesus had died for his sins, redeeming him, drawing him back into relationship. Then I asked him why he used that strange phrase, are you a sent one by a great God to tell me about something called Jesus? Well, he explained, my brother is a teacher, but he's not a good man. He's often drunk. He came home from school early the other day, and we asked him why. He told us, well, there'd been a special teacher at the school. So we said, well, what did he teach? And he said, well, he told them he had been sent to them by a great God to tell them about something called Jesus. Well, what did he say? Oh, I didn't bother to stay. I went out and got a drink. Ever since that day, my herdsman friend concluded, when I've been out watching the cattle, I've repeated that phrase, a sent one by a great God to tell me about something called Jesus. And every time that word Jesus came into my mind, it was sweet in my heart. And so I wanted to know more about this thing called Jesus. What do you do when something of value is missing? You make every possible effort to find it. From Old Testament to New to today, we've seen that God is always seeking the lost among all the peoples of the earth because he values relationship with them so much that he sent the seed of the woman, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to provide for their salvation, for the restoration of relationship on the cross. We've also seen that even today, God's method of seeking lost men and women is spirit-led people. How does this apply to us here at Grace today? Well, there are two kinds of people in this world, and there are two kinds of people in this room. There's the lost God is seeking, and that might be you. And there are the sent ones who are to seek them. And that might be you. The question is, which are you? Perhaps you've never realized that the God who created all things and who made that great promise of a seed of the woman who died on the cross for you is wanting a relationship with you. God wants a relationship with you. The barrier to that relationship is the same thing that Adam and Eve experienced, and that's their sin, your sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your sin has made a barrier between you and your God. 
what the coolest thing is, God wants to move beyond that barrier and have a relationship with you. And he provided for that barrier to be removed. How? When the serpent's head was crushed on the cross. Because of that, because there on that cross, Jesus bore the penalty for your sin and mine, you can enter into a relationship with the God of the universe who has been searching for you. You do that by simply saying yes to the offer of the free gift of Jesus as your sin bearer. There's a barrier between you and your God, but Jesus took that barrier on himself. Now if you will put your trust in him, then that relationship can come that God wants so very much. And if I can help you in any way after the service, find me, I'll be right up here in front. Pastor will be up here. Members of our worship team will be up here. We'd love to talk with you. Or there's a nice little connection card there in the pew in front of you, and you can fill that out, put it in the box at the back, and one of the pastors here will be in touch with you probably within 24 hours. Now, a final word to the rest of us, those of us who are sent ones, like Dr. Helen was. God is always seeking all kinds of lost people, and so should we. Always. Who is God bringing to your well of living water? Who is God, where, where might God be sending you to take the message of a restoration of relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ? Remember, it could very well be that he's going to ask you to take the good news to somebody you don't particularly like, somebody you don't spend much time with. There's probably a Ninevite or two in your neighborhood. So here's a practical idea I'd like to leave you with. And it's something that I try to remember to do each morning. And that is, I start my day with this prayer. And this is not the closing prayer after the sermon. This is just an illustration prayer. Father, it is clear that you're always seeking the lost. You know the divine appointments with lost people I have today. I don't know them, but you know them. On one of our stops on this trip that Mary and I have been on, um, we were at a restaurant in Pensacola, Florida, and some wonderful friends of ours were with us, and when the little waitress came up, um, it was obvious that she was wearing a bandana on her head, sort of indicative of someone going through cancer treatment. And so our friend just smiled and just naturally said to her, is there a way we can be praying for you? So I'm not asking you to do something spectacularly strange. I just want you to enter into the lives of people. Ask God to show you in that divine appointment how you might just make a little inroad that would open up a conversation and see what God would do with it. Each day begin saying, Father, you know the divine appointments of lost people I have today. Prepare my heart, prepare their heart. God is always seeking all kinds of lost people. 
The only questions are, is that you? And will you join the search? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for showing us throughout the Word of God that you are always seeking lost people. Some of those lost people we don't particularly like, but you want a relationship with them just like you wanted a relationship with us. Father, there might be some folks with us this morning that need to be found. I don't know who they are, but Father, you know who they are. If you're here this morning and through this message, you hear God saying to you, I love you. I want a relationship with you. And you want to know more. Maybe you want to make a commitment right now to Jesus Christ. Would you stand up? We've got our eyes closed. I'm not looking. Nobody else is looking. If you want that relationship, if you want to be found, would you stand up? I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I just want you to stand up. I'm not looking at you. Nobody else is. If that's you, would you stand? And if you're ready to be found, pray this prayer in your heart with me. God, thank you that though I'm a sinner, you want relationship with me. And you provided your son to die in my place. Thank you. I'm yours. I trust Jesus. You can sit down. And Father, for those of us who are sent ones, help us to take seriously the fact that we've seen all over your word that you are always seeking all kinds of lost people. Help us to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.